Well, good morning, LCM. Good morning. Today is August 27th, 2023, and this is week number two of our three-week series that began last Sunday with the sermon entitled, What is a Man? Well, the answer to that question is that a man is to bear the full image of God in all of his complexity. Somebody say all. Well, the problem is not found in his complexity, but rather it is our deliberate choosing of only the attributes we like or currently understand about our God, therefore rejecting the fullness of who he is. The solution to this idolatry is to be an anointed man, to be an anointed man who is seeking to perfectly image the full character of God at all times, in all situations, without deviation. So this solution... It starts with an anointed man, but the purpose of God's full image dwelling in him is to produce something, and that's to produce an anointed family, anointed family that displays God's fullness. So therefore, we have the title of today's sermon, What is a Family? Everybody say, what is a family? So in this house, as families, we are committing ourselves to the lifelong pursuit of knowing and imaging the fullness of God. Can I get an amen? Now that, that sounded like you were responding, but are we committing ourselves to a lifelong pursuit of all that our God is? And while we are committing ourselves, is there also anyone in here, any families that can acknowledge that seems like it's a monumental task? To pursue knowing and imaging the fullness of the very one who is limitless and boundless, it for sure takes a lifetime for us to go after that pursuit. We also have some good news for you today. We get to search out the full complexities of God and display them as a family. Come on now, as single, indivisible units that represent all that God actually is. Aren't you guys excited at the fact that we get to discover the fullness of God? Well, turn with us to Deuteronomy chapter 29 and say, what is a family as you're turning? What is a family? We're going to pick up in verse 29 as well. The secret things belong to the Lord our God. But the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever that we may do all the words of this law. So yes, there are secret things that belong to our limitless and boundless Father. In fact, Proverbs 25.2 says, it is to his glory to conceal matters, and it is to his good pleasure to reveal them to the men and the families who search after them. So notice that once they have been revealed, these treasures now belong to you and your family. These family heirlooms of kingdom composition are for the very purpose that your entire family can do all the words of his law. In other words, so that you and your entire family can image God in all of his fullness. Isaiah declares this exact truth in chapter 8, verse 18, when he says, Behold, I and the children whom the Lord has given me are signs and portents in Israel from the Lord of hosts, who dwells on Mount Zion. So men who search out the fullness of God and receive revelation of who he is, you are then to lead your family in displaying all the complexity of God, and together, 
as a family, become supernatural banners and symbols of his wonder. This was the purpose of God revealing himself to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that from the Lord, each anointed man's encounter with the complete character of God would then become visible in the generations that followed. Through these generations, God's name would be rightly represented, and the deeds through them as a family would bring Yahweh the glory due his name. Don't you want to bring Yahweh glory through your family? Turn with us to Psalm 78. We're going to begin in verse 2 together. Psalm 78 and verse 2. It says this, I will open my mouth with a parable. I will utter hidden things, things from of old, things we've heard and known, things our ancestors or our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from their descendants. We will tell the next generation the praiseworthy deeds of the Lord, his powers, and the wonders he has done. So men in the room, do we have some men in this house? With the secret things of God now revealed, you are able to fully image your God. So here's the result of that. The result is that you have the confidence to open your mouth with boldness and share the wisdom, the insight, the prophetic revelation that was made known to you for your family. Man, when you get a revelation, when you get insight, that was given to you like a secret thing that is for you to present and give to your family as a precious heirloom. The process of imaging God and leading your family to do the same is the testimony that God is after the entire time. You imaging God was always meant to lead to your family imaging God, now get this, in the exact same way and to the exact same degree that you do. The idea of imaging God is designed so that your family is to do it to the same proportion, to the same passion, to the exact same standards of what's going on in your life. See, it is the family which is the smallest indivisible unit, imaging all that God is and doing it together that is a supernatural testimony of God's action, of God's empowerment, and of his glory because his image is now rightly seen in your family. So everyone turn with us to Ephesians chapter 3. We're going to gain a clear perspective of this truth. Say, what is a family once you're there? Are you there? We're going to pick up in verse 14. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. So let's dig into this. You know, God has a model, a model that he establishes in a family. And that is clearly seen in the way that a husband's name is taken on by his wife. All the men say amen to that. Amen. It's taken on by his children. It's taken on by all that belongs to his household. In fact, the family name, name encapsulates the character and the deeds that flow from that home, the ministry that flows from that home. This model, however, is solely derived from God himself meaning that he is the one who gives families their identity. He is the one who gives families their name. And every family is to be a display 
of the full complexity of who he is. So better said, God, Yahweh, is the origin. He is the source, and he is the sustainer of a family name. And therefore, the works each family is to accomplish also reflect the fullness of his name. So let us help you by stating it plainly. Any family that tries to establish or determine their name apart from the fullness of God's image is one that is idolatrous. Further, any family name that is not operating from God's name will be void of the fullness of who he is and is guilty of attempting to redefine who Yahweh is, which is also idolatrous. So our primary focus has to be imaging who God is in his fullness and therefore the source that directs what your family is to be. Take a look at this slide. We want to summarize it for you in a clear fashion. What is a family? First of all, a family is named by God. He is the one whose image that we reflect, that we become, and therefore our identity, our purpose. He is the source of all of these things. We don't just take pride in a family name. We take pride in his name as we become exactly who he is, and we reflect that with and in our family. Church, we want to tell you as we focus on the character and attributes of the sovereign of the universe. I mean, we, we're thinking through how do, we, how do we help our church engage with and summarize a limitless, boundless God. We're going we're gonna to try to engage with that today. See, we were thinking about things that would be a blessing, like a list uh, comprised of verses from every book of the Bible that would help you get a glimpse of who God really is, that declares all who he is. We could attempt magnifying him who he is with alliterations that would try to lift you to the third heavens. The truth is, is that we want to have our whole hearts focused on all of who he is. Can somebody say amen to that? Our approach today is going to be this. We want to bow down in humility and exalt everything that he is. Not because of the immediate application of how his name and his character might bless me, might make me better, might help me to do the things that I feel like I need to do, but rather that we focus our hearts on him for who he is. Not just what he's going to do for us, but who he is. Somebody say, who he is. See, we want to fulfill what King David wrote in Psalm 138. Turn with us to Psalm 138 and verse 1. Psalm 138 verse 1 says, I give you thanks, O Lord, with my whole heart. Before the gods, I sing your praise. I bow down toward your holy temple and give thanks to your name. Thanks to your name for your steadfast love and your faithfulness. And catch this last part. For you have exalted above all things your name and your word. What the God of all heavens does is that he exalts above all things his name and his word. So what we're going to do today is we're going to do our best. Our best to humbly exalt both his name and his word. In other words, his full image. There will be a time for us to make personal application, allow for a searing conviction, and inspire every family to action today. But right now, 
Right now, we want to share with you how the Lord has been helping us this week to begin to grasp the full image of who he is. And that's going to be by revisiting a fantastic slide from Sunday about the image of God. So, Pastor Wade, take us through it. You guys remember this slide from last week? Man, were you as inspired to hear Pastor Judah and Pastor Eric walk you through this entire slide last week? Did it encourage you? Did it empower you? Isn't that an amazing thing? I think I want to spend, we're going to spend some more time actually doing this, and we're going to share with you a little bit of a way that we engaged with it this week. So we're actually going to elevate his name. We're going to elevate his word. We're going to turn to these scriptures. So you go with us to Genesis chapter 17, and we're going to elevate who God is in all of his complex beauty right here together. Genesis 17, 1. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. See, this is a normal process. Before God gives you an assignment, God establishes with you who he is. He starts off by listing and naming who he is so that the instructions that follow are based on on his character. They're based on his image. They're based on who he is. I want to tell you today, church, that he is God Almighty. He is El Shaddai. He is the God who is more than enough. Somebody say more than enough. See, God spoke to a man named Abram. He displayed his image to him. Namely, I mean, think about this. There's no situation. There's no adversity. There's no promise. There's no length of time that he is not more than enough to bring about exactly what he desired that might take place. The point is that is not that he has more than enough. Be one thing for you to have more than enough, and that's glorious. But he is more than enough. His very character, who he is, is always more than enough. It's always more than enough in every situation, in every day, in every time. His very person encompasses infinitely more than is required. Listen to this for a second. Who he is is infinitely more than is required to fulfill every part of his plan for every person in every season for all time, in every period, in every nation, and he could do that all at the same time. As we draw close to that one, to the God who is enough, he's more than enough. As we draw close to El Shaddai, then you start to see these things, and you're not even worried about what your situations are. You're looking at who he is, and you're saying, praise God, he's more than enough. He's more than enough for me. He's more than enough for my family. And surely he's more than enough to accomplish what he desires to accomplish in us. Somebody say in us. In us. Let's continue to exalt his name and his word and go to Genesis 14, verse 19. And he blessed him and said, blessed be Abram by God most high, by El Elyon possessor of heaven and earth. So God's revelation of his character and image is that he is not just higher, but he is the most high, exalted above all that is or ever could be coming into, uh, into existence. 
He is the one who created and is the owner of all things that exist in the heavens and all of the earth. And as God Most High, he demands and deserves all praise, glory, honor, and majesty. Why? Because there is no one like him. There is none above him. There is no one who is his equal and not even coming close to who he is. But dig into this deeper. There is no adversary that is even worth comparing to him. No enemy or opponent who measures up can't even come close. So what does that mean? It's not even worth mentioning our difficulties, discouragements, or details of what could fail. Because he stands as the God who is most high and above all. Come on, somebody say the most high God. God, I love that. He's not just higher. He's not even just the highest. He is so far beyond anything that you can imagine and anything that is in existence that he's just the most high. Turn with us to Genesis chapter 21. Genesis chapter 21, and let's look at verse 33. It says this, Abraham planted a tamarisk tree in Beersheba and called there on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. Church, aren't we used to kind of rattling through these things so quickly that we, we are not just engaging with them deeply enough? The everlasting God, the El Olam, the one who has been in existence and is existence itself. See, Abraham is planting a tree. What is he doing? He's trying to establish something with some permanence so that every time he's there, every time he's thinking about it, he is trying to cry, he's crying out to the everlasting God. So he's planting something just more permanent than how he feels in that moment. He, God is before all things. He is enduring. He is steadfast. He is immovable. He is unchanging. Church, he never tires. He never wanes. He never lacks. He never ends. He never ceases to be exactly what he is. His nature is eternal. To say that he's rock-like is an insult to him. The rocks and the mountains look to him to see what stability actually is. He is the everlasting God. What he declares, he will surely fulfill because it is who he is. It is in his essence, in his nature, it is his image. Whatever the everlasting God has spoken, whatever he has promised, whatever he has blessed someone with is empowered eternally. Somebody say eternally. His words are powered eternally because that is the one who spoke them into being. How much should that raise our confidence and our trust in who he is? We're trying to elevate his image for us today. Let's go to Genesis 16 and verse 13. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are a God of seeing, El Roy. For she said, truly, here I have seen him who looks after me. You know, Hagar is in a place of desperation. And God declares the future for her and her son in this moment. And while standing in this moment, when she cannot see what lies beyond her current distress on earth, the God of heavens does see what's going on. He has been watching over her the entire time. And the true blessing that Hagar is receiving is a revelation of who God is. That she can now see him and not just a temporary relief to her discomfort. 
Man, how much of an encouragement, how much of a strength that is when God enables you to see him above and beyond what lies right in front of you. It has nothing to do with what's in front of you. It has everything to do with the fullness of who he is. Genesis 22, verse 14. Genesis 22, 14 says, So Abraham called the name of that place, The Lord Will Provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. The Yahweh Yireh, the Lord who will provide. It's because he is a God who sees that he knows precisely what is needed in every circumstance. Because he knows and he is able, he can provide the perfect sacrifice. He can provide the perfect solution and the perfect provision every single time. Church, he provides because it is his character to do so. He never fails to act according to that image of his character. He never fails to act in accordance with who he is. He doesn't fail to provide. He cannot fail to provide. He will not fail to provide for those who are acting in accordance with his very image. Can you feel how as you begin to actually focus on the character of who God is? Can you feel how petty everything that you're worried about is? Can you feel how us focusing on him is fixing things in your own heart? Can you tell not only is your faith building, but your actual understanding of him is fixing things, and we're not even having to address those things? Who he is provides everything that you need. Who he is is Yahweh Yireh. Go to Exodus 17. And we're going to pick up in verse 15. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it, The Lord is my banner, Yahweh Nisi, saying, A hand upon the throne of the Lord. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. Here Moses is in view of God's character. God's character that will not let his family or generations be wiped out. The Lord is the name of his family. The Lord is the name of his tribe and the nation, and he will be the God who goes to war with any power that sneaks to snuff them out. That's a promise that stands for those who are within the the full name of God, within the family of God, that no matter what opposition comes across, God is going to preserve your family line. Judges chapter 6 and verse 24 says, then Gideon built an altar there to the Lord and called it, the Lord is peace, Yahweh Shalom. To this day, it still stands at Ophrah, which belongs to the Abizarites. The Lord is peace. Come on, think about that for a second, church. Gideon built an altar to the Lord, celebrating the one who is Shalom. He is the one who created right order. He establishes right order, and he goes after crushing all enemies who oppose his right order. Every decision that he makes is one that is made in perfect shalom. Every decision that God makes is in perfect order. Every direction that he gives is one that amplifies his shalom. 
He is never out of shalom because he himself is shalom. Think about that. This so much identifies him. He, the God of shalom, Yahweh shalom, so loved his ordered creation that by the time you get to John 3, you realize that because he loved his ordered creation, the shalom that he created, he sent his son to make sure that every facet of it was rightly executed in this world. God is a God of shalom. He is one that puts everything in right order because that's who he is. Let's go to 1 Samuel chapter 1. Everyone say his name and his word as you turn. His name and his word. In verse 3. Now this man used to go up year by year from his city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts, Yahweh Sabaoth, at Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests of the Lord. Elkanah was a man that feared and served the Lord while leading his family to do the same. His trust was in the full character of God, worshiping and sacrificing to the Lord of hosts, the only one who has dominion and rulership of all creation. Why is this important? It's because Elkanah was faithful to worship the God who could bring about a faithful priesthood in the midst of an apathetic and corrupt priesthood. Take a look at Exodus 31, 13 with us. Exodus 31, 13. Go ahead and turn there. It says this. You are to speak to the people of Israel and say, above all. Somebody say above all. You shall keep my Sabbaths. For this is a sign between me and you throughout the generations. That you may know that I, the Lord, sanctify you. This is Yahweh Makadashim. He is the Lord who sanctifies you. You can hear the remnants of the word kadosh or holy in that. He is the one who sanctifies you. See, church, Moses is being instructed by God to make sure that the Israelites know this important facet of his character and his image. God is making sure that his people know that he is the God who sanctifies them, who makes them holy in every way. See, are, are you understanding what's, what's right here before you? Because his character is this, he creates the Sabbath. You thought the Sabbath was just a day. You thought a Sabbath was just instructions. It is actually a reflection of the very character of God. He is the one who makes holy. So he created a day for that to be able to happen as a pure reflection of who he is. See, the Sabbath will sanctify you because the Sabbath was made to be what he is. It is one component of what God has made that demonstrates who he is to the entirety of his people and therefore to the entirety of all creation. I don't know that I've ever thought about the Sabbath as being just a pure reflection of Yahweh Makadeshim. But the Sabbath was given to show that he is a God who sanctifies. Come on, church. 
It's who he is and he's what he's demonstrating and he's showing it again and again. He is declaring his, his actual character to his people. He's showing who he is because of the importance of them getting all that he is. He wants that revelation in them and so he's giving them every good thing to help them understand this. Turn to Psalm 23 and we're going to read verse 1. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. This is a declaration of Yahweh Roy. The Lord is my shepherd. It's not that we think of a shepherd and then we know what God is like. The reality of his character is that everything about him is the standard and ultimate fulfillment of what a shepherd is trying to reflect. The Lord is my shepherd. So by focusing on him, by focusing on his character and his image, is to discover what it is to truly be a shepherd. See, David's profession may have been to be a shepherd, but what made him into a king was the fact that he understood that it was the very attribute of God himself to shepherd. And then instill these traits into those who have set their hearts fully upon the full image of God. Let's turn to Jeremiah 23. Jeremiah 23 and verse 6. It says this, in his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. Yahweh, Sidkenu. The Lord is our righteousness. Church, in the dark days of Israel, Jeremiah is proclaiming God's attributes to a stubborn and a rebellious people. I can relate to that. A people that would be delivered from the consequences of their own sin and self-righteousness as Yahweh himself would be their righteousness. Again, he doesn't just possess righteousness. He is righteousness. So that means that everything he does is righteous. Whether it feels that way to us or not, every single thing that he does is by definition righteous. This is a God that we can place all of our hope, all of our trust in, and as we exalt him today. Let's continue to exalt his name and his word by going to Ezekiel chapter 48. And we're going to pick up in verse 35. The circumference of the city shall be 18,000 cubits, and the name of the city from that time on shall be the Lord is there, Yahweh Shammah. It's a great name, Shama. So here in the last words of the book of Ezekiel, this prophet is getting a glimpse into the eternal inheritance of Israel and the holy, of city, holy city of God on earth. This is the final statement Ezekiel proclaims, and that being God's name defining the very spot where Yahweh's fullness would reside for an eternity. That for all of eternity, all of creation, heavens and earth could point and say, the Lord is there. Yahweh, Shama, a beacon that will last for an eternity for all to put their eyes upon. Turn with us to Isaiah 17 and verse 6. 
Isaiah 17 and verse 6 says this, Gleanings will be left in it, as when an olive tree is beaten, two or three berries in the top of the highest bough, four or five on the branches of a fruit tree, declares the Lord God of Israel. Yahweh Elohim Yisrael. The Lord, the God of Israel. Remember here that we are wrapping our arms around all that God is. Isn't this, doesn't this feel like a unique encounter here? It's because we're not often focusing and trying to get our arms around all that he is. The complexity, the beauty, the majesty of who he is can be seen by the fact that God defines himself as the God of Israel. This is an immutable characteristic of God, and it's just as essential and central to him as any that we have discussed so far. We don't leave one of these topics to talk about the next. We are getting our arms around it. He is all of these things and cannot not be these things. He is all of them at all times in perfect fullness, not in perfect balance. In perfect fullness of each of these. When we say he is God of Israel, that is just as pertinent as him being the God who is our righteousness. Or the Lord who is my shepherd. He is all of this and he's declaring that who I am is the God of Israel. His faithfulness to his people will not end because it is literally who he is. Because he describes himself this way, valuing every aspect of all that it means. You know what it means for us? It means we're going to value it because it is who he is. We're going to value it just like he does. Let's look at Zephaniah chapter 3 and verse 17. Boy, isn't it good to begin to wrap our, or try to wrap our, our arms around who God is? Verse 17, the Lord your God is with you, the mighty warrior who saves he will take great delight in you. In his love, he will no longer rebuke you, but will rejoice over you with singing. So clearly stated, God is a warrior. This is more than just powerful imagery. You're getting a glimpse into the very character and image of the Lord God himself. And the Lord, the, this warrior is with you. He saves you. He takes great delight in you. And he viciously decimates his enemies. He takes great delight in ending the existence of the wicked and is bathed in the blood of those who oppose him. This mighty warrior is restoring the people who are his, and he is doing it in perfect harmony with all of his other traits, all of his other attributes, because you cannot and must not pick and choose what you like or don't like about him. He is great. He is a mighty warrior, and at his core, this is who he is and will never change from that. Genesis 18, verse 25. It says, far be it from you to do such a thing, to kill the righteous with the wicked, treating the righteous and the wicked alike. Far be it from you. Will not the judge of all the earth do right? God is is a righteous judge for sure. See, here in the days that we're reading about, the days of Sodom and Gomorrah, I want to tell you that our God never misses a thing. His actions are right, true, and are again the very definition of what judgment was always meant to be. He never convicts the innocent. He never 
convicts the innocent. See, aren't you having to wrestle right now with the fact that you felt like you were innocent and wrongly convicted of something? He never convicts the innocent. He never fails to punish the wicked. He gets it right every single time, without exception, for all time. Because our God is a judge, and we can see him in his character that he never fails to be the perfect judge. Psalm 74 and verse 12. But God is my king from long ago. He brings salvation on the earth. In this psalm, Asaph is declaring God's sovereign rule over all things at all times. There is not one moment before or after time that God has not been on his throne governing the heavens and the earth, destroying rebellion and bringing salvation to his creation. He is the God that is all things righteous, holy, and true. And because God is my king, none can escape from the fullness of his kingdom. You know, what we've just shared with you are 16 examples of God exalting his name and his word. Further digging into scripture will reveal countless more examples of who he is. And we get to spend a lifetime searching him out. Though our minds are finite and strive to grasp the fullness of who God is, the Lord has given us a supernatural sign. A supernatural sign to help us know him. No, are you like me whenever you're looking at the full characteristics of God? It begins to evoke a desperation. I want to know him. I want to grasp the fullness of who he is. I want to throw aside the apathy or the feeling of defeat that I can't because the evidence is I can. And so can you. This supernatural sign that we have received is God's word made flesh. The full embodiment of who God is in a man. And that man being Jesus, the son of God. Let's all turn to Colossians chapter 2. As you're turning to Colossians chapter 2. What the Lord was showing us throughout this week is that we do not want to be a people who are guilty of saying, God, he is so great and unsearchable, and being guilty of then not searching after him. He's so good. He's unfathomable. I can't understand everything about him, so I won't try to understand anything about him. He has done so much for me. Where's, where's our friends who've been in India? The, the phone ringtone of Ann and Israel what shall I render to Jehovah? He has done so many things for me. How could I ever repay the Lord? He's done so much, I couldn't repay him at all. So I won't try to repay him at all. See, the Lord is helping us today as a church body. Yes, what it means that he is Beyond our ability to search is that you can't exhaust the search, not that you shouldn't search. It means that you can search after him every day, every hour, every minute for the rest of eternity and not exhaust who he is. Not lose what he is. 
You'll be learning things more and more about him. This is the pursuit of a lifetime. This is going to cause us to be strengthened in ways not only that are needed for the future, but it causes us to develop an intimacy with him because of who he is. Man, I'm so excited about this. Colossians chapter 2. Verse 8, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. What is very clear is that there is a war, and there is a war on God's image. And when it, when it comes down to it, it's either going to be God's image as displayed through Christ or the world's. There is no in-between that exists. And the opportunity that we have is to look at the full embodiment of God in a man and the image of Christ and see how we live as free men within his kingdom. As we live free from sin, free from the subjugation and captivity to an image other than God. You hear this in the way that verse 8 begins, see to it. Meaning that we have a personal responsibility to be on guard, to watch, and to always keep our entire focus on the full image of God. That means that any deviation, any partiality of who he is, and we're taking that as the full standard, means that we're beginning to side with human tradition, elemental spirits of this world. Do you want the fullness of God's image in you? Do you want the fullness of God's image in your family? Then we're going to see to it, shamar, guard, to be on watch to make sure that we are all striving to imitate the image of Christ, which is a full embodiment of God. Take a look at verse 9 with us. For in him... The whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Oh, we're about to get something here. Y'all ready? See, it may not surprise you for us to say that in Christ the entirety of the deity dwells. All that God is, his full, complex, beautiful, amazing image is found in Jesus Christ. Everybody's like, yes, of course, he's God. What's the last word on the screen? The fullness of the deity, the fullness of the image of God dwells not in the spirit of Jesus Christ, but in the actual physical human body. See, there's been millennia of preaching that is aimed at us grasping the deity of Christ. We have a vital importance today for us to grasp the humanity of Christ. Yes, he is God. Yes, he is a man. An actual human man. See, so what are we really saying? We're actually saying that all of the divine attributes of God, all of the image, all of the complexity of God can and does reside inside of a man. Jesus is actually proof that this can happen. He did it to the fullness. 
He had the fullness of God's image at work inside of him bodily. Yeah, but that's Jesus, right? I mean, that's just him because of the all God part, but that's just him, right? I don't think so. Let's reread verse 9 and continue on to the following verses. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him. And you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. Oh, look how verse 11 starts. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. What is clearly stated here, what we should begin to find hope courage and confidence in is that all of these can live in a man perfectly. That the fullness of God was first displayed in his son in bodily form, but it was for the intent to give you the hope and the model that it can happen inside of you. Oh, let's expand this a little bit. It's not just the fact that you have hope that the fullness of God can dwell in you. It's the hope that the fullness of God can dwell in your family. It's the way that we view what God has entrusted to us and saying that if God can put his fullness inside of me, surely he can put it inside of my family. When we look at this, we're taking aim that we are to be the fullness of his, his name, his deity in bodily form. Jesus is the proof that it can be done. But it requires something. As this passage states in verse 11, this comes through circumcision. Remember how we said earlier in the message, the complexity of God's name and the fullness of who he is is not the problem. It's our sinful nature that's the problem. Our sinful nature is what gets in the way. It's our wrong imaging of him that is the problem. And the hope is that those things can be cut away. It is his nature to cut away. Get that? It is God's nature to circumcise and to be at war with everything that corrupts the full display of his image in man. In man. Yes, he's going to do it in all of creation. Yes, all things are going to be restored. But he starts with you. Look at verse 12. Having been buried with him. Did you see how verses 9, 10, and 11 each had an in him? Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you, who were dead in your trespasses, trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. Church, the solution here is that as the circumcision takes place, which is the very character of God. So the circumcision in the flesh was what God assigned and created so that men would know this part of who he is. 
The circumcision that is not now done with hands, but done on the human heart to make sure that that sinful nature is cut away is part of who our great God is. See, you were buried with him. Somebody say, with him. You were buried with him in baptism. You were raised with him. Say, with him. Through faith in his powerful working, through faith in the very character and image of God, you are resurrected alongside of him. Is Christ alive right now? Then you must be too with him. You experience the same power. Come on now. You can start rolling through your Rolodex in your mind of the same power that raised Christ Jesus from the dead is at work and is alive in you. Why? Because it's God's very method of doing this. See, resurrection power in your life is increased as you remain in him and then you operate with him in the fullness of all that God is being displayed in you as a man, in you as a family. Somebody say that's powerful. So then Jesus is the proof that the entire image of God is housed inside of a man. Consider how Jesus then operated in perfect accord with all of the attributes of God at all times. Turn with me to John chapter 5. Say, what is a family as you turn? As you're turning, I just want to speak to a few men in the room. I want to say, Ethan Riosora. Jesus is proof for you, son. He is proof that the fullness of God can dwell in a man and can dwell inside of you. Elijah, I can see you so clearly with that yellow shirt, man. It looks handsome. Jesus is proof for you. Proof that his fullness can operate in you at all times in all situations. Are there men in this house who are gaining confidence of the fact that Jesus is your proof? Are there families in this house that are gaining encouragement that Jesus is your proof? Are you in John 5? Amen. Verse 19. So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, the son does likewise. I'm going to ask a rhetorical question. Does Jesus tell half-truths? No. He is truth. So therefore, when he's speaking these words, he means every bit of what he's saying. That he does nothing on his own accord. Well, when you begin to look at just the fullness of God in bodily form, in man, Take to account the very things that he experiences as a man with the fullness of God dwelling in him. We have a slide for you. Take a look. It says, Jesus is the proof. Consider John 4. Jesus is there at Jacob's well, and Jesus, tired as he was. This is the man part of it. Anybody ever been tired? Jesus was tired. He didn't skip that part because he was an actual man. As he was from the journey. So he sat down by the well. It was about noon. So he's hot and he's tired. And yet he perfectly fulfills the will of the Father 
because he does nothing on his own unless he's looking to the Father's image and perfectly embodying all that he is. So then he begins to minister to the Samaritan woman. Doesn't matter about the physical part. He chose to be the proof that God's image is then in a man. Mark 1, a man with leprosy came to him and begged him on his knees. If you are willing, you can make me clean. Jesus was super sweet and nice. So a man with leprosy runs up, falls on his knees, and Jesus is indignant. That doesn't seem right, except it's perfectly right, because Jesus was perfectly reflecting exactly the fullness of all that God is in this moment, and then turns around and heals him. See, he is all man who was the fullness of God. He is the literal proof that the embodiment of all that God is resides within a man. Mark 4, a furious squall came up and the waves broke over the boat so that it was nearly swamped. Jesus was in the stern sleeping on a cushion. The disciples woke him up and said to him, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? He got up rebuked the wind and said to the waves, quiet, be still. Then the wind died down and it was completely calm. He said to his disciples, why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? You looked at the wind and the waves and you lost sight on the very image of God. I'm here to be the proof that his image resides within a man and I will do the exact will of God himself right now. I'll sleep. Why? Because he's in complete peace. He's in the will of the Father. He's imaging all that God is. Then he rebukes the wind and the waves. Then he rebukes the disciples. All of these parts in mere moments from each other are proof that Jesus is the embodiment. Luke 11, then the Lord said to him, now then, you Pharisees, clean the outside of the cup and the dish, and the, the inside you are full of greed and wickedness. You foolish people. Did not the one who made the outside also make the inside? Wait, are we, are we still talking about a glass and a cup anymore? See, Jesus, being the full image of God, was able to look at the situation, never be distracted, never be confused. Why? Because God is none of those things, and he looked in the full image of God and was empowered to be that in the man, in the flesh, and therefore he was able to accomplish God's will. All in all, John 6.38 says this, For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. You know, we can look at Jesus, and we should, and we see the perfect model of God's fullness dwelling in a man, and as we said, he is the proof that it can be done. But Jesus does something for his disciples and all of his hearers. He puts the responsibility on their shoulders. I'm going to read to you out of Matthew 5 and just verse 48. He is telling them on the Mount of Beatitudes, You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. See, he is modeling before them of how the fullness of God dwells in a man, but then he puts the onus on them to reflect the full image of the Father just as he is. What does that mean? As the examples that we showed you earlier, 
To be perfect, even as your heavenly Father is perfect, it means to be angry when your Father is angry. It means to be jealous when God is jealous. Even, you got to get this, it's to be vengeful when your Father is being vengeful. And it also includes being compassionate when the Father is compassionate. Man, if, you can, if we can get this, that we cannot pick and choose or diminish the fullness of God's image. We have to align our whole beings with the fullness of God. That's when we begin to do what Jesus did in perfectly imaging the Father. The deviations that we have from being like the fullness of our Father, they must be circumcised away. They have to be. There's no other way that you can because your sinful nature is in the way. But the hope is that you can be circumcised. It can be cut away. Those oppositions to his image can be destroyed and pulverized into dust. The intent and purpose is that as this happens in you, men, you anointed men, you now have the responsibility to direct your entire family into the full virtuous nature of our God. Why? Why did God so powerfully reach down and pull you up from the muck and mire? Why did he wash you, redeem you, and even anoint you? It was to be the head of a household who would raise up an anointed family. Let's all go to Exodus chapter 32. Exodus chapter 32. These next passages are going to help us to circumcise away the things from our own families. Somebody say my family. That needs to be circumcised away. Look at Exodus 32 and verse 21. And Moses said to Aaron, What did this people do to you that you have brought such a great sin upon them? The revelry that was going on, Moses' summary to Aaron, like a family, like the head of a household speaking with his family members, what did they do to you that you have brought such a great sin upon the entirety of the people. See, Moses is dealing with his family because they're not imaging God rightly. It's the literal definition. The golden calf incident is the literal definition of walking in idolatry. It's creating something, calling it God, and worshiping that as if it were this God that we've been talking about, the fullness. But you pick something, one part of it, the representation of God that is so limited, the part that you like, the part that you want, and calling that the entirety of who he is. Look at verse 22. Aaron said, let not the anger of my Lord burn hot. Honey, calm down. You know the people. They haven't had their nap time yet. They're just set on evil. For they said to me, make us gods who will go before us. We don't want the image of the real one. 
Give us something that we can wrap our arms around. Make it nice, make it tidy, make it nice and compact so that I can put him in my pocket. Make me that kind of a God. As for this Moses, I mean, you know, savior of our people, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what has become of him. So I said to them, let any who have gold take it off. So they gave it to me, and I threw it in the fire, and out came this calf. Okay. Title of today's message is? Okay. What this looks like in our lives is when you're hugging your kids after they've done something really wrong and should be receiving discipline. Oh, I mean, I don't. How about when you hear yourself making excuses for the worst kind of behavior in your kids? Okay. So for some of you who have older kids, here's what it looks like for you. Never addressing when a child fails to do what you say. No, that's, I guess that's okay. It's not. It's an idolatrous form. How about this? How about when... How about men, when you know that your sons are in repeatedly involved in repetitive sins? And there's never really anything other than a slight addressing of it in your own words. That's idolatrous. You are warp warping the image of God with each occurrence that you do not respond in the fullness of his image inside of your family. Let me say it a different way then. Is there no amount of idolatrous sin in your home that will bring about the Lord's anger? Is there no amount of rebellion that someone gives you that will cause a fire to rise up inside of you? Is there no amount that will bring a godly judgment or godly severity? How is that us reflecting who God is? There are things that have to be circumcised away from us in this room today. Look at how it continues on in verse 25. And when Moses saw that the people had broken loose, for Aaron had let them break loose to the derision of their enemies, then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, Who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered to him. See, Moses is standing here as a man. By the way, where was Moses just prior to this? Being enveloped by the very image of God. And so he's demanding. He is coming here. He is bearing the full image of God to the entirety of his family. Do you notice that there's not a long pause for Moses to go away? Think upon it. Cool off. Pray about it for a few days. He was enveloped in God's image, literally standing with God, receiving instruction, and when he stepped out, he wasn't even in question about what should be done because he knew who the father was and knew what kind of father he had to be. Moses is standing in the image of God and demanding that his entire family, including Aaron, Join him in doing the will of the Lord in that moment. Where have you made some foolish, idolatrous rules in your own house? Let me help you. 
Oh, we, we never embarrass our children. That's a dumb rule. I don't want to embarrass them. Except they're an idolatrous behavior. You're worried about embarrassing them? Ah. Well, we just choose to never disagree in front of our children. What you should be doing is imaging God right in front of them. Showing the disagreement. What did Moses say to Aaron? Why did you, what did they do that you brought the sin on the people? He didn't go off and hide that and have a personal discussion. He lived out in front of everyone because he was imaging God. It was his responsibility to get his family to image God in the same proportion that Moses himself was doing. Church, I'm going to remind you that the family is the smallest indivisible unit in the kingdom. You're not successful if your family's not successful. You are not godly unless your family is godly. This is what it's like to have the image of God working in us and being built into our family. You are not godly unless your family is godly. You know, just, just the union itself between a man and a woman, it's supernatural. It begins that display of God's fullness as a family. To have children is a supernatural sign. It's a miracle every time. So the question really is, what am I doing with the supernatural that God has entrusted to me? Am I investing into them what God has invested into me? Making sure that we, as a family, are reflecting the fullness of his name. Now we can see in Exodus 32, Moses, having been face-to-face with God, is then representing God's vengeance, God's wrath, discipline. But let me say that no man no matter how great of a man of God that you are, is exempt from misrepresenting God. Numbers 20, turn with me there. We're going to pick up in verse 10. Then Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly together before the rock. And he said to them, Hear now, you rebels. Shall we bring water for you out of this rock? And Moses lifted up his hand and struck the rock with his staff twice. And water came out abundantly, and the congregation drank and their livestock. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Because you did not believe in me to uphold me, as holy in the eyes of the people of Israel. The Lord addressed the root issue inside of these leaders' hearts. It wasn't the technicality of you struck it, but you're supposed to speak to it. The issue was not upholding the fullness of God before the family. 
The verse continues, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land that I have given them. These are the waters of Meribah, where the people of Israel quarreled with God. And get this, and through them he showed himself holy. So Moses was held accountable for not upholding the full image of God to his family. And yet in the midst of it, God showed himself to be holy when no one else was. What does this look like practically? It's when you or me as a a parent, you have heard God's direction and counsel of how to discipline your children. And what God has spoken is too gentle and soft for where you currently stand. You have no hope of their redemption, no hope of their restoration. You just want to be a punitive measure of the injustice of what is done to your name rather than a reflection of God's name. The heart of this issue is that we do not believe in the Father's character, attributes, and image in every situation. God showed himself to be holy through the family's rebellion, meaning that he maintained his full image to them with his righteous judgment. Because God is holy. And his desire is for all families to be what he is. And that is holy. And holy meaning this, set apart to represent his full image. Set apart to represent his full image. But that brings whole new clarity to what was written on Aaron's forehead. Holy unto the Lord. Or set apart to represent the fullness of Yahweh God. Turn with us to Malachi 1. Malachi 1, we're going to take a look at verse 6. Malachi 1 and verse 6. Listen to the way that this starts. A son honors his father. Putting this in familial terms. And a servant his master. If I then am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear? Says Yahweh Sabaoth, the Lord of hosts, to you. O priests, who despise my name. But you say... How have we despised your name? By offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? By by saying that the Lord's table may be despised. When you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor, says Yahweh Sabaoth, the Lord of hosts? See, here we've got the context of a family meeting. The priesthood has been despising God's image and polluting the offerings to him, listen to this, by what they accept from the family. The pollution, the despising comes by what the priesthood, representing God's image, accept from their own family. Men, accepting blind, lame, and sick offerings from your family, is that not evil? Women, accepting blind offerings from your children, is that not evil? 
it is evil because of what you're accepting. Well, I didn't do it. Yes, but you're accepting it. Men, when you accept it from your wife that is less than the image of God, it is an evil act that you just did. When you're accepting less than the children are supposed to be made in the image of God, when you accept less than that, husbands and wives, that is evil. See, this rebuke of the priesthood is so that there can be actual circumcision of heart for the sake of the entirety of the family of God. In fact, as the book of Malachi continues in chapter 3, verse 7, the Lord of hosts says, return to me and I will return to you. Circumcise those things away, accept righteous offerings, and I will be right there with you to help you, empower you, so that you can be the fullness of my image. The Lord is seeking to restore and bring restoration to families because it's through the family that God desires for the fullness of his name to be upheld for all to see. How much more powerful is it, not just an individual, but their entirety of the family that declares all that God is because they're imaging him rightly? That is a powerful thing. It's almost unseen in our day, but this is going to be a house that brings families into restoration so that we can have the full image of God on display. In that light of God's aim at restoring families, turn with us to Exodus 34 as we begin to approach a close. We're going to pick up in verse 4. So Moses chiseled out two stone tablets like the first ones and went up to Mount Sinai early in the morning as the Lord had commanded him. And he carried the two stone tablets in his hands. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed his name, the Lord. And he passed in front of Moses proclaiming, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents through the third and fourth generation. So after the idolatry of the golden calf, Moses is again back on the mountain and before the Lord. And he describes who he is and the righteous and just actions that the Lord is to his children. Yahweh proclaims his own name. I am. That's how he begins in reminding Moses of his full, complete, and complex character. That full character that will restore all families of Israel. Restoration of your family must begin with his name. It must begin with the fullness of his name. Watch how this continues in verse 8. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. And he said, if, I, if now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us. For it is a stiff-necked people. And pardon our iniquity and our sin and take us for your inheritance. Moses begins that restoration by his own humility and worship before 
the God of all heavens. And he's asking for God's fullness to come into the midst of his family. He's taking acknowledgement of their true heart condition. There is a problem, but he also takes responsibility for the problem in the family. All the while seeing the hopeful promise of what the restoration will be. And that is to be the full image of God and becoming God's inheritance. As we come to the conclusion of our time, to the balance of our time, we have a slide for you because we want you to understand what a family is. A family is named by God and must bear the full image of God and they must do it together. Somebody say together. Ephesians 3, for this reason I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. That according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you. That is a plural word right there. Every you in this passage is plural in the original language. That according to the riches of his glory, he may grant to your family to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your family's inner being. So that Christ may dwell in your family's hearts through faith. That your family being rooted and grounded in love, listen to this next verse, may have strength to comprehend, oh, he's unknowable. You're supposed to be having the strength to comprehend all this, with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth. You're going after it, and he'll give you the strength to be able to comprehend it. This is even better. And to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. You're going to know that which surpasses knowledge as a family, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Worship team, begin to make your way to the stage. Everybody stand to your feet. As we're reflecting, thinking personally, this message, what must we do? We must take responsibility for the areas of deviation. We have departed from God's full name in our families. It starts with us as heads of households. Just as Jesus was the proof that God's full character can be displayed in a man. Leaders of households, we are proof to our family that it can, that they can. What I'd like for, do is, for you to do is begin to bond together as families, households. Pull your family close to you. Those of you single guys who live in the same house, y'all bond together as well. What we're going to begin to do is bow before our God. We're going to humbly ask him to help us circumcise away what is removing or deviating from the fullness of his name in our families. It starts with us taking responsibility, men, but also it's leading our family to come up to where we are in our our pursuit of the fullness of God's image. 
So as I begin to pray, leaders of households, begin by bowing your knee here at this altar. Begin to humbly put yourself before God. Lay your hands on your family, and as a family, be circumcised, but also as a family, rise in that fullness of what Christ can be inside of you. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and your name. We thank you for giving us the opportunity to be restored as families. Lord, to see the full image of who you are placed inside of us together. Lord, may we represent you fully and rightly all the days of our life. And may you alone get the glory from what comes from our homes. In Jesus' name, amen.